0: PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to the Cast from Physical Therapy. Each month, PTJ Editor-in-Chief Dr. Rebecca Crick offers her take on the articles appearing in this month's PTJ. Here is Rebecca Craik. Hello, this is Becky Craig, Editor-in-Chief of Physical Therapy. I am delighted to invite you to the May issue. This month's issue contains 11 articles. The first paper is a LEAP paper, which is linking evidence and practice. The authors are Elizabeth Poppert and Cornelia Kulig from the Division of Biokinesiology and Physical Therapy at the University of Southern California. This LEAP is entitled Rehabilitation Following Lumbar Discectomy. As many of you know, lumbar discectomy may be indicated when both imaging reveals a disc herniation and when there's radicular pain and or other neurological symptoms. Usual care provided by physical therapists postoperatively may include patient education, modalities, stretching, exercise, and manual therapy it's not clear when this rehabilitation should be offered. It's not clear what specifically should be offered. So there are lots of questions associated with the rehabilitation following the surgical procedure. So please look at this LEAP article and see how they took the Cochrane Review that had minimal to moderate evidence supporting exercise and look at how the authors applied it to clinical practice. I think as a clinician, you'll find this very useful. The next paper is a profession watch and its title is Exercise Assessment and Prescription in Patients with Type 2 Diabetes in the Private and Home Care Setting, Clinical Recommendations from Axon. These are guidelines that are being offered by the Belgian Physical Therapy Association and Axon, A-X-X-O-N, is like APTA. All right, so it's the Belgian Physical Therapy Association. There was a work group, a Flemish working group that were responsible for coming up with these guidelines. What these authors did is they looked at guidelines that had been developed and said, how can we tailor these guidelines for private practices, which they're assuming are small, or home care physical therapy settings? And they were interested not only in giving guidelines for the intervention itself, but also in screening. I don't need to say more about it. I think it's a very, very straightforward and clearly written set of recommendations and I hope that you look at them. The next article is a good lesson learned article, not a happy story for the moment, but certainly indicates the kind of work that needs to be done. So the title of the paper is The Effect of Inspiratory Muscle Training Before Cardiac Surgery in Routine Care. The first author is Karen Velkanet, she and her colleagues are from the University Medical Center in Utrecht in the Netherlands. There was a randomized controlled trial that indicated that inspiratory muscle training done before cardiac surgery specifically had an incredible improvement post-surgery in reducing pneumonia. Because of that particular study, the office decided to take inspiratory muscle training and apply it. And so, in a sense, this was an attempt to do translational work based on a randomized control trial. The really interesting part of the study is to read the discussion. There was substantial missing data. Therapists didn't have time to go through the risk factors early on. Patients were not compliant with the exercises. It was real practice. And so I think we see the difference between a beautiful, well-controlled, randomized controlled trial and clinical practice. The next paper we're going to talk about is entitled Participation in Community Walking Following Stroke, The Influence of Self-Perceived Environmental Barriers. The authors include Cynthia Robinson and her colleagues, from the University of Washington in Seattle, Washington. This is a really interesting paper that involves 30 subjects with stroke and 30 subjects without stroke. The subjects are at least 45 years of age and had the stroke at least three months prior to the study. The authors were interested in determining the factors in the environment that might prevent community ambulation. So, these are self perceived factors, and the study is basically an extension of work that's been done to date. So, Anne Shumway Cook is the last author on this paper, and Anne Shumway Cook wrote a paper in 2005 that began to look at the physical and personal factors that prevented community ambulation in persons with stroke. So, this paper then is an extension of the work. This is the first attempt. The sample size is small, but I really am excited about the implications. So thank you. What's fun about this month's issue is we're looking at a second paper entitled Barriers to Exercise in People with Parkinson's Disease, and there's a lovely complement between the two papers. And I'm very pleased to see this paper in our journal. There will be a podcast on this paper. The moderator is Kathy Gilbody, one of the editorial board members. Terry Ellis, the first author, will be one of the speakers. And Jennifer Brock from the University of Pittsburgh will be the other speaker. So please listen to the podcast. The next paper is a research report of a totally different nature. The authors are Jill Black and her colleagues from Widener University. The title of the paper is Student Experiences in Creating and Launching, a student-led physical therapy pro bono clinic, a qualitative investigation. Many physical therapist programs have some sort of service or student-run clinic, some sort of a community outreach program. I am pleased that these authors chose to describe the impact of these clinics on the students themselves. So this is a really lovely paper describing what the clinic does for the student. So that's one aspect. And the other aspect we recognize is the value of the clinic to the clients or patients that are served. So the semi-structured interviews led to emerging categories that included leadership skill development, competency in hands-on clinical and administrative skills, commitment to both community and the clinic, and finally pride. So if you're in a physical therapist program involved in these kinds of clinics or if you're a student about to participate in this clinic, I think you'll find this article of great interest. The next paper is entitled Combined Statistical Analysis Method Assessing Fast Versus Slow Movement Training in a Patient with Cerebellar Stroke, a Single Case Study. The first author is Deng. This is a really interesting paper. The authors really challenge the current methods that single case studies use to determine whether or not the intervention was effective. The authors do a lovely job suggesting that there are other ways to analyze the data. So I suggest that you look at Figure 2 because they compare traditional methods of ABA design statistics to what they are proposing themselves. I think this is a paper that's useful to persons interested in quantitative analysis associated with single case design, and I also think it's a value in considering what's done with persons with cerebellar problems. The next two papers are about optimal, and so I'm going to give you a little bit of background about optimal because you need to know about optimal in order to really truly read these papers. In 2002, the American Physical Therapy Association developed an outcome measure entitled Outpatient Physical Therapy Improvement in Movement Assessment Log, Optimal. The purpose of developing the test was to ask the person who was receiving physical therapy what they viewed their perceived ability was in performing actions or movements. There were two dimensions, difficulty and confidence. So both papers are examining the psychometric properties of Optimal. In the first case, Elston and colleagues are applying item response theory analysis to the patient data, and there are approximately 3,200 patients that were in the database, and they only looked at the difficulty scale. But they were examining the psychometric properties using different statistics than had been used originally. In the second paper, The authors are also looking at the psychometric properties of optimal, and they look at both the difficulty and confidence scales. The conclusion by both authors is that optimal is in fact not optimal. The first authors only looked at the difficulty scale and report that it's really much better if you're low-level functioning, and therefore additional items need to be added if it's going to be useful in outpatient settings. The second authors have problems with reliability and overlap between the difficulty and confidence scales. Reliability for the lower extremity subscales was good and better than that found for the trunk and upper extremity. These authors do not recommend the use of optimal in its current form. Both papers are saying that additional work needs to be done. The question is, should work be done on this instrument or should some other instrument be developed? The Riddle paper has already generated controversy. We have a letter to the editor by Andrew Guccioni and his colleagues and a response by Dan Riddle and his colleagues. So I really ask you to read the papers carefully and to read the letters to the editor because it's a really important question and that is, what does the patient perceive about their ability to move and their confidence in that ability to move? The next paper is a really nice follow-up to the two that discussed optimal. This is a development of a computerized adaptive test for assessing activities of daily living in outpatients with stroke. The team was led by I-Peng Shea. There are nurses, occupational therapists, physical therapists involved in this research project. The authors are interested in looking at computerized adaptive testing to be able, in a few questions, to assess your ability to participate in activities of daily living. This adaptive testing holds lots of promise, and many people are excited about it. And the final paper in the May issue is entitled Development and Validation of a Self-Report Lower Extremity lymphedema screening questionnaire in women. This is, again, a development of a tool. The tool is designed to identify lower extremity lymphedema among normal weight women and women with obesity. So it's really exciting to see the development of a brief 13-item self-report questionnaire that appears to have excellent psychometric properties, and may be very useful in identifying persons who need intervention for low extreme lymphedema. And in closing, I'll remind you, if you do knowledge translation and implementation science research, or if you do innovative technology research, please consider submitting an abstract for these two special issues. I'm really excited about them. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you have a question for Dr. Craig, Email ptj at apta.org and be sure to include CrakeCast in the subject line. This is a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net.